Okay, let us take you into the book of Mark. And uh, with Andrew home a week ago for the Moody concert last week, he was with us for just one night, our oldest, and then Ethan here the whole week. And I worked part of the week, took a few vacation half days here and there. I got a little bit perplexed with my message study. I wound up late in the week realizing that I studied the same passage that, that uh, was already preached on by one of the other pastors. So I thought, now what am I going to do? We've already studied this passage. Pastor Barry preached through Mark 2, 13 to 17. I felt a little embarrassed. I had a little egg on my face. I thought, well, I'm going to preach it anyway. And so I sent a note to Pastor Barry, and I said, I'm going to cover the same text you did recently. I said, please don't misunderstand. You did a great job with that passage. I'm not trying to improve on it, but I don't want to study a whole other passage now and start over. I'm just going to add some application to what you already did. So if you're saying, why in the world are we studying this? We were here like three weeks ago. Uh, now you know. And he said, no worries, no problem. We, uh, we understand each other and uh, the humanness that goes with the... Uh, with, uh, with our jobs and our lives. So Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, and uh, I'm glad that we are staying in this uh, passage because it, it just, it's a joy to just kind of stay in the sequence of where we are here. So let me just start with a question this morning. What would you do in order to live? Would you turn against your own family member? Would you turn against a friend that you've been loyal to? all of your life, in order to save your own skin? might be difficult to really answer that question unless you were in a very tight place where you had to really wrestle with it. On the surface of it, I think most of, if not all of us, would say I would absolutely do nothing to betray a friend or a family member. Two millennia ago, the Roman philosopher Cicero said, the shifts of fortune test the reliability of friends. Circumstances can really change perspectives and change loyalties sometimes very quickly in our lives. Someone else has said something similar in a more modern vernacular. A friend is someone who stabs you in the front. Who hasn't known that grief, that pain of a surprise letdown when somebody has disappointed you? I think most of us, I'll say it again, we do not know with certainty what we would do in certain situations unless we were in those situations. I've been reading a book of late, uh, rather difficult reading, but a book uh, of importance nonetheless about the Nazi regime and, and some of the rounding up of the Jews that were driven into the persecution or the, really the concentration and execution camps. And what probably jumped out at me more than anything was that they didn't all wind up there being rounded up by just the Nazis. The Nazis did a lot, of course, to, to go out and arrest Jews and, and to put them on the trains and to get them to the concentration camps, but the Nazis were clever. They actually recruited, as you, some of you probably know this history a lot better than I do, but they actually turned some of the Jews against themselves. They recruited certain Jewish citizens and, and they basically twisted their arms, so to speak. They turned them into uh, informants against their own people, their own countrymen. They had a name for them. They called them chasers or griefers. Comes from a German word. Their motivation then for those Jews who would turn against their own countrymen was simply self-preservation. If a person didn't comply with the task that the Nazis were putting in front of them, it would bring a swift and unwanted response 
it would mean immediate deportation yourself to a concentration camp or perhaps that of your parents unless you would comply with what the Nazis wanted you to do. So they would hold you hostage to, to people that you loved and cared about or maybe to your own well-being to go out and befriend people who you knew were your fellow countrymen and to befriend them and identify them publicly to the Nazis, to the Gestapo that would follow you a few steps behind. So you would misuse the trust and the friendship that you had with people all your life long through to expose people that the Nazis wanted to arrest. Basically, it's signing a death warrant for people that love you, that have trusted you, that cared about you. What an ultimate act of betrayal. You know, there's a fellow in the Bible who truly lacked loyalty. There's a lot of people like that in the Bible. But there's one in particular in the text that we come to today who lacked loyalty to his countrymen. And I use this rather poignant story of the uh, introduction today about uh, the Jewish betrayers to really underscore the sense of betrayal that people in the days of our Lord felt really a similar sense of betrayal against a man that we're, uh, that's identified to us in this text today as Levi, or Levi Matthew, a tax collector. We find his story in our passage today. He's the lowest of the low. In our modern-day English vernacular, we'd call him a lowlife. He wasn't just a, an IRS agent. He wasn't, he wasn't honorable like we would honestly, hopefully most of us would think of those people as honorable, but the tax collector in the days of our Lord were very different. Look at the text with me here today. It says, Jesus went out again beside the sea. That's, of course, the Sea of Galilee. He was going back into the city of Capernaum. It says, all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. He was bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, preaching the gospel, saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And he passed by, and he saw Levi. Levi is the name of this man, this tax collector. In the gospel of Luke, He's identified also by his Greek name, which is Matthew. And in the Gospel of Matthew, which he wrote, he's later a writer, a disciple, a follower of Jesus. He's called here. This is his calling. But what an unusual man that he would be invited to be a follower of Jesus, given his sordid background, his corrupt background, his, his, his griefer background. And he passed by, Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus is identifying his Jewish ancestry, his heritage. He's a Jew. He's sitting at the tax booth. Now, now Capernaum is the largest city at the time on the northern shores of Galilee. It's a port city. It's, it's a very prosperous trade route. And there he is with his little tax booth, able to collect a lot of money. And he is a pipeline, if you will, of income to the Romans. Because he's, though he's a Jew, he's a, a consort to the Roman government, which is in control of that country, which is in dominion of it. And he works for them, really, as he collects taxes. And he's able to basically to, to add to the tax at will. He's able, there's no strict ta tax code he has to follow. He's able to extort money from his own people and to, to, to line his own wallets. And, to, and that's what they did. That's why their reputation was so bad. So he's doing a couple of injustices to his people. He's sending the hard-earned money of these fishermen, especially, and other local people who have an agrarian background. He's taking their hard-earned money, making them pay inordinate amounts of taxes uh, to, to Rome, who they despise, their, 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 uh, their oppressor. 
and he's keeping plenty for himself. And Jesus looks at him. Jesus says to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. Now that was a, that was a strange scene. You and I just can't really appreciate it here, standing 2,000 years away from it. But there must have been gasps. There must have been shocks, if you will, in the room, not in the room, but in the, along the shores. What is a respectable, aspiring Jewish rabbi like Jesus even doing talking to a man like this? Any outstanding, upstanding Jewish citizen wouldn't have even given that tax collector the time of day, much less a religious person. And here's Jesus, not only willing to acknowledge him, he calls him to follow him, to come alongside of him. You know, if you remember from last week's text, our Lord knows all hearts. He sees beyond the surface. He saw something in Levi Matthew that nobody else saw. He saw a man with a wounded heart, a man who was crushed by his own greed, a man who was crushed by avarice, by his need to, to take advantage of people, which, which didn't give him anything. He had a fat wallet, but an empty heart. And Jesus saw an openness. Jesus could tell, this man is open to who I am. He's open to repentance. And he says to him, come, follow me. You know, Jesus breaks the stereotypes, doesn't he? Human beings, we've, we've just got all kinds of them. We separate and we segregate. We divide people on, in, in so many different categories and different lines. of You know, they, are, they, they fit these little boxes. We just do it all the time without even thinking of it. And Jesus just breaks all of that down. And he looks at this man, he says, come, follow me. It's a scandal to people, and it gets worse. Jesus goes and he dines with him, and this man invites all of his tax collector friends to come over. Some people call it a Matthew party. He holds a party, this, this man Matthew, for Jesus. And Jesus is there reclining with them and enjoying himself. And the Pharisees look on, and they are scandalized. They're just offended. Verse 15, it says he reclined, that's Jesus. Jesus reclined a table in his house. He went to his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. It just doesn't make sense to the average Joe, much less the religious Joes, <laughs> and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, these betrayers of the people. They couldn't stomach it. They'd had enough. They said to it, they were scandalized. And they said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Yeah, they must have just been blush red. They were, they were frustrated. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. That was a common secular and religious statement of the day that didn't originate here. That was a common statement. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That text, that story is found in the three places in the Gospels that I'm sharing for you there. Here is a scandal of grace. Here is Jesus, a man who is growing in stature as a reputable rabbi, speaking invitingly to a member of the dregs of society, 
a tax collector. And Jesus says, come, follow me. Jesus shatters the stereotypes. And I don't know how you and I would feel if we'd have been there. I don't know how do we feel today about people that we know have lived, if you will, as what people today might call the, as the scum of society, people that haven't contributed anything but pain or hurt to, to society. People, we might say, well, they're unworthy. They don't deserve help. They don't deserve mercy. But what happens if they are open to help? What happens if their hearts are repentant or if they could potentially repent? Couldn't anybody turn to faith in Christ? I think humanly speaking, and I don't speak for everyone here, but I think for a lot of us, it's hard to think of anyone less deserving of the company of the Messiah than this tax collector betrayer, right? Wouldn't it be easy to write him off? But Jesus didn't do that. God heals people who are aware of their need for forgiveness. And Matthew was such a person. This tax collector knew he was a sinner. And what's so interesting to me about the passage is, is the people who were really in, in, in the, worst, the worst case situation in the text here, at the end of the situation, at the end of the story, isn't Matthew. It's the religious people. They really weren't well, but Jesus couldn't give a word to them. He didn't speak a word to them about their own condition because they were self-righteous. And he couldn't really, he knew they had small hearts. And so he didn't even bother with them. Grace isn't grace if you, th if you don't think you need it. If you think that you've just got it made in the shade, if, you're, if, you're trusting in your, if we're trusting in our outward goodness or outward uh, religious activities to, to make it right with God, which they were, and that's one of the dangerous things of religion. You know, I sat here in a prayer group yesterday. We had a, an hour, hour and a half prayer meeting yesterday. They're always good. And as I sat just in one of these front rows with a small group here, I so appreciated the prayers of a brother from another church. And, and one of the prayers, and I just found myself in agreement with this simple prayer, but he was saying, Lord, help us not to be dulled, not to be dulled or lulled by, by the, just the, the hum of religious activity as churchgoers. And I took that in my own heart to mean, Lord, help me not just to get lulled to sleep and be comfortable in my religious kind of life that I get to be a part of as a Christian. You know, we have Christian everything these days. We've got Christian dentists, and, and we've got Christian this, and Christian, Christian salesperson, Christian, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. We've got Christian dogs, I guess. I mean, everything, you know. And, but we need to not, we, we need to be in the world, don't we? not of the world, but in the world. And we can be so insulated and so isolated and so quickly put off by anything that isn't Christian. That was the case with these first century Pharisees. They were put off by anything that didn't really fit their comfort level of religious purity. Their biggest thing was separatism. They reduced spirituality, if you will, and what they thought was pure religion to being isolated, separatistic, away from the world. And they thought that really was how to be upstanding and outstanding. Now, there was more to their religion than that, but that was a big piece of it. And so they were just offended to see Jesus, this friend of sinners is what they called him. They were offended to see him hanging out with lowlife. How would we feel if we see a fellow Christian hanging out with somebody that we know has got a bad reputation? 
Well, we don't know our brother or our sister's heart, for one thing, so we better be careful. But hopefully we would be supportive and we would pray. We'd say, man, I hope they're there to make a difference in that person's life. Lord, give me the courage to reach out to those people that are unlike me, that are different, because I'm really no different. We're all beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. Even if we're not living in some of those places that others find themselves in today, some of us have been in those places, haven't we? And, and any one of us could be in those places today if it weren't for the grace of God. So we need to be careful, don't we, as religious people, that we're not lulled into this kind of a sleepiness, if you will, and even a self-righteousness, which is a very scary place to be. We are sinners who are simply people saved by grace, and we want to herald the truth that we follow a healer who heals people who are crushed by sin. You know, of all the people that uh, God has allowed me to see come to faith in this church over the years, each one is a joy, is a memory in my heart, in my mind. I've seen just God's blessed this church with just a, a wonderful 130 years of, of, of existence for, as one of his local churches, and only he knows the number of people that have truly put their faith in the gospel and have followed him. But in 20 years, I've seen a lot of people make that first step of faith here and follow Jesus and become fruitful followers of Jesus. There's nothing more exciting to me than that that I can really think of. But one of the people that came to know the Lord in this church a number of months back said something to me uh, after his conversion that has stuck with me. It's kind of haunted me actually a little bit. He came out of a, a drug addicted background and he said something to me that was not at all malicious. It wasn't at all mean-spirited, but it was just honest, and I, I respected it. He said simply that even though he was now attending church, he said, I still find myself more comfortable hanging around, not participating, he said, but hanging around people that have got the background that I, that I have. I'm still more comfortable in AA groups and therapy groups and recovery groups than I am sitting in church. Yeah, I'm not used to it, he said. And I, I don't want to read too much into that, but I don't want to diminish what he was saying. I sensed in his comment that there's still something about being in a place like this that is a little bit hard to get used to. What a guy like we find in this story here Levi Matthew, would he find himself at home among us? I hope he would. Would he be embraced? If the Lord saved the most uh, crazy renegade in this city, and I'm not going to, I don't know who that would be, but somebody that's got a bad reputation and made him a believer or her a believer and brought him into this sheepfold, how would we treat that person? Would we treat that person with encouragement and love? and embrace and say, how can we be, you're our brother in Christ, you're our sister in Christ, how can we partner with you and help you grow? I hope we'll be that kind of place. I hope that's in our hearts. It's got to start there, doesn't it? I hope that we would bring that person the, uh, the, the, the hope of God day by day, and we wouldn't be a stuffy or distant kind of people and say, man, who are you? What are you doing here? How did you get in here? Man, are you sure you really trusted Christ? Or what would God want to do with that person? We'd never say that, right? But what might we think? Whatever we do, let's not allow ourselves to ever become lulled by religion. Let's not allow ourselves to become isolated, my friends, and, and, and not allow people with difficult backgrounds to get in here. We don't want to do that. Let us pray for the grace to see ourselves clearly 
as sinners who are saved by grace. I've got to put in a short uh, pitch here for something that uh, has been developing for months. Some of you are well aware of it. Some of you probably aren't. So I owe you this very short uh, informational moment here. We have been training a number of people for months here with a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. And it's still in the training phase, but it's finishing very soon, this training phase. And it's launching on April 13th at 7 o'clock in the evening. If you don't know what Celebrate Recovery is, it, it covers a lot of bases. It helps people recover from a lot of different difficult things. It's a biblical balanced program to overcome hurts, hang-ups, and habits, to, to give you kind of the macro picture of it here. It's based on the actual words of Christ rather than psychological theory alone. A large percentage of attendees, I like this part, will come from outside the church family. One church I know of that has run this for years has actually run the statistical average and found that 70% of the people that come to their weekly Celebrate Recovery meetings at the church, 70% are not from the church. That's outreach. That's mission. That's not isolation, is it? And it's holistic. It's a church that isn't as much as worship's important to us and learning the word is important to us and small groups and all the things that we, we love here. We know that making disciples involves serving the whole person. It, it means helping hurting people out of their hurts and habits and hang-ups. It involves all of life. It involves the car clinic that's coming up. It's, it's holistic. That's how we want to be. God cares about the whole person, not just these spiritual categories of, of, of people's lives. And so I'm excited about this, that we can be a part of something that will serve people beyond what we're doing now. Pray for Celebrate Recovery. If it's something you're interested in, pick up an information, a, a, a little pamphlet at the information desk. In fact, the, the gentleman that I mentioned as an illustration a few moments ago who said, I'm still finding it challenging to get comfortable in church. When I talked to him about Celebrate Recovery coming here, he just lit up. like a, He says, now that's something I need to come to. Why? Because he knows he can come as an encourager to people, as a wounded healer. And he's got new faith in Jesus to share that hope with people. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Friends, let's pray for that ministry. And so we're going to go through shortly just some applications of this little text today. But they're, they're important. They're so important. Learning to love like Jesus loves. And I'm just going to put, put three applications together here for you. Like Jesus, let's see what others often overlook. As you look at this text from the pages of your Bible, Jesus passed by, but he didn't look over this man. Verse 14, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he locked eyes with him. He made eye contact, and he was on mission. Jesus was on mission. And Jesus knew that there would be a, a scandal here for him to even talk to that man, much less invite him, invite himself to go be with him. But he... He rolled the dice, if you will. He took that risk. Jesus, people, well, let me back up. People looked at that man through their, their human perspective, and they saw a low life. They looked at Matthew and said, this guy's a horrible man. Jesus looks at people, and he sees something more. That's how we need to look at people, not as just human beings that are crushed by selfishness and waywardness and brokenness, because that's all of us at the core, but we need to see people for what God would, could do with them and through them. 
what only he can do with them. You know, the, 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 in, he, in the Hebrew language, the name Matthew means gift from God. You know, there's a bit of uh, divine poetry here at work, it seems. A man like Levi Matthew, before he followed Jesus, was a covetous man who took people's gifts and hoarded them for himself. He was a rip-off artist, and now he was going to live up to his name. Jesus looked at that same man and said, he's not going to be a rip-off artist for the rest of his life. He's going to become a writer, the writer of a gospel. And, and he is going to become an evangelist. And in fact, the gospel of Matthew, which this man wrote, which you have in your Bible today, is really intended, it's primarily written to a Jewish audience. Instead of ripping off his fellow Jews, he shared the good news of Jesus with them through the gospel of Matthew, the first gospel in the New Testament. See, Jesus looks at people differently than we do. He looks beyond the surface, and he looks at what they could become, what God can do with them if they'll turn to God in repentance. And that's, and that's how we are to look at people, not at what we see on the surface. God sees, see, we see categories, rich, poor, upstanding, downright. God looks past all of those external things. Jesus sees in you what no one else sees. He sees in you what no one else sees. When Jesus called Peter, he renamed him. He gave him a new name, and he said, you're going to become like a rock. He says, you're like sand right now, but when I'm done with you, you're going to be a rock. And later, he's called in the New Testament a pillar. God sees in you what you don't see. He sees what he can build and make you become. He sees that in other people. One of my favorite passages from the New Testament that I find is so important is from 2 Corinthians. Paul, the apostle, said, after his own conversion, he said, we used to see Christ as just a, as Jesus, as a human being. In fact, he saw him less than, as less than that, right? He thought that Jesus was an imposter and was a false messiah. But after Paul became a believer, he said, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We don't just look at people on the externals. He says, we don't look at people that way anymore. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So Jesus looked past people's behavior, and he saw value. He looked past people's behavior, and he saw value. And that's what we are to do as well. Look past behavior and see the value of people. That's what Jesus did. Second thing is, like Jesus, we need, we need to aim to love, not be liked. Aim to love. Matthew 9, 36, when, when he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. They were sheep without a shepherd. Mark 10, 21a, Jesus looked at a rich man, is the context there, and he loved him. He still put requirements before that man. He said, sell everything you have and follow me. He says, and, and you'll be rich, rich uh, in heaven and follow me, be my disciple. But Jesus loved him before that man did anything. Jesus' love is unconditional. To love like Jesus loves is not always going to win the world's favor because Jesus loved this man Levi Matthew and Jesus didn't win points with the religious crowd for it in fact uh, it earned him scorn but Christ defended his socializing it looked scandalous to the Pharisees it looked unholy but they were the ones who were in the wrong not Jesus he saw their small hearts and he says basically those who are well have no need of a physician but those 
who are sick. Kent Hughes says the doctor basically needs to visit the ill. The whole should go to the fractured, the joyful to the mourning, the strong to the weak. And the thing about tax collectors and their ilk in the days of Jesus is that this, they knew they were sinners. They knew it. And the religious people didn't know they were. Or at least they figured, we got it pretty well together compared to all these other people. And so they didn't understand their need of grace. And self-righteousness was their issue. That's the problem with the critics of Jesus. And so someone here might say, well, was Jesus engaging in sin? How far did he go? We know he, he didn't because the Bible tells us that he was tempted, but he never did sin. Jesus did not model isolation, but he didn't model assimilation, did he? He didn't engage in sinful activities. He was accused of being a friend of sinners, but his focus was mission. And so that needs to be our focus. Not isolation, not assimilation, but mission. Mission. We have a mission, win, build, sin. And as we embrace that mission, we allow the fragrance of Christ to permeate our life. Christ through us, Christ in us, Christ beside us, Christ with us. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Paul told the, told the Colossian church. 2 Corinthians 2.14, Thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now most of us, especially us guys, I hope none of us guys, would ever care to wear a perfume. Cologne, okay, but not perfume. But just for the fun of it, I went and looked at uh, some of the world's most expensive perfumes for ladies. I figured they'd be more expensive than guy, per guy colognes. That's nuts. I found the top ten list. These aren't the top five. The bottom of the top ten is one called Joy. Joy Parfum. I don't know if that's how you say that. Parfum? By Jean Patou. 800 bucks a bottle. Anybody got one of them at home? Here's one called Shalini. $900 a bottle. Uh, they go up from there. Anik Gutal's Eau de Hedrian. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. I'm butchering it. 1500 bucks, And they go up from there. And you know, you can put those all over yourself and smell like a flower. And, 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 and people say, wow, does that person smell great? It's a fragrance. And I'm sure they are stunning. I'm sure they're terrific. Who wouldn't want to get a whiff of that, right? The problem is it's not going to save anybody. Not even going to come close. It's just going to smell pretty for until uh, you wash it off, until the sweat makes it dissipate. God puts the fragrance of Jesus in each of us, which is priceless. And he just says, live it out. Let my son live that out of you. Let people catch a glimpse of him. But, but be careful that you... You don't hide it, that you don't hold it back, that you don't put barriers up like these religious guys did here. Don't become an obstacle to that grace, to that perfume or that fragrance getting through because, well, they don't deserve it. I don't want them to smell Jesus. I'm going to stand back. Oh, I don't want to get my hands dirty. I don't want to hang out with that guy. Oh, he offends me. Oh, he makes me uncomfortable. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Are we? Are we? Our key verse this year is, You then, my son, my daughter, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. 
join me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. We just want to stay in a careful place, don't we? We want to be humble in our hearts with, with who we are before the Lord. Let me end with this before we end with a short, uh, a short video challenge. Kent Hughes says, The first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness. Think about this in real personal terms. The first link between your soul and Christ is not your goodness, but your badness. Not your merit, but your misery. Not your standing, but your falling. Not your riches, but your need. This guy in the story today knew that. And grace met him and lifted him up. And that's how we all came to know Jesus. It was in our need. It was in, our, it was in humility. It was in our repentance. We are sinners saved by grace. Father, we pray that the message that you have put in our hearts will be clear as we live our life out before a watching world. We close with this video that hopefully underscores the need to let the light shine, to think clearly about people the way Jesus did, to go beyond externals, to see hearts that you can change for your glory. It's in his name that we pray.